Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps. I'm joined by my regular banter buddy in crime. Gabe Garrick. Hello. Hey, mate. Every year, Hollywood Int releases two movies based on the same idea. Which movie did it better? How did this happen? And would there possibly be a third better movie? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about master thieves pulling off one last job. The Score versus Heist. So, let's kick off this episode, Gabe, with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 13th of July, 2001, The Score was released. Here's the IMDb synopsis. An ageing thief hopes to retire and live off his ill-gotten wealth when a young kid convinces him into doing one last heist. So, Gabe... Did you first see the score when it was released at the cinema and what was that experience like? I think didn't everyone kind of like, I mean, it was like that hype thing. It's like, oh, Norton, De Niro, Brando, the three generations of method actors coming together for a a daring robbery. And I guess the level of excite perhaps didn't quite match what the film was, but certainly going into it, Oh, man, like I think me as a young film fan, it certainly was a tasty prospect. Yeah, you're totally right. I do recall every single review was all about three generations, three generations, three generations. They kept saying that over and over and over. And I think it felt to me like the biggest deal since Heat, six years before 95. Heat was about finally having De Niro and Al Pacino come head to head. And this was like the same sort of idea, but it was more generational, like- Three Oscar winners, three titans of their generation, all one film together. And then being in a, to use that phrase that you and I kind of hate, but is used a lot, an elevated genre film, a genre film for adults with actors that you recognize from classic points in Hollywood history. I think back then we were still just calling it a genre film, though. I don't know if that stupid ass term really became so ubiquitous back in no, you're right. one. They were still kind of making these movies for regular cinema goers to enjoy it. Yeah, it was assumed at the time that actually you could be above 20 and go and see a film at the cinema, and that wasn't unusual. So, this was before the glut of superhero films, or I guess the idea that every film these days has to be like a roller coaster ride, a spectacle. This was an era when it wasn't surprising to have more kind of measured stories with a lot of character beats and so on, rather than just being all fluff and puffery and lights and action, for example. Yeah. Was there talk of it at the time as well about improv stuff? You know, because they're all sort of method actors. De Niro is like the famous improviser, same with Brando. Was that a thing? I can't quite remember. It became a thing, which we'll get to after our review, in relation to the production troubles it had between Frank Oz and Marlon Brando, Ah. who's kind of infamous for his improv and finding his way into a role. But I'm pretty sure from recollection, the other two, the younger guys, Ed Norton and De Niro, tend to be those sort of people that stick much more to the script. Although having said that, I think this is only about, what, two years after the dramas that happened on American History X, where Ed Norton actually rewrote all the script on set and it was basically coming to 50, 50 cuffs with that director. Uh, Tony Kaye, yeah. Tony and Kay. didn't he rewrite? He's got a writing credit on the Hulk as well. Yeah, that's true. seems to want to get involved in the writing and kind of pisses everybody off and then they shuffle him off. Yeah, right, actually. There's a whole backstory, I'm sure, to Ed Norton's career in that I've got to say, what I actually see on screen of Ed Norton, I love, but clearly he's had issues behind the scenes where he's tried to, I guess, in his eyes, improve or elevate the story beyond what it is. But perhaps his execution of doing that 
has sort of rubbed a few writers and directors the wrong way. Yeah, maybe just like an intense dude, passionate dude about his thing. And certainly back in 2001 when this came out, off the back of the sort of breakout roles, Primal Fear, American History X and so on, it certainly felt like, oh, check it out. Here's this like new hot talent with the acting opposite, the sort of like, I think at this time De Niro was probably 60 or something. Yeah, this is before De Niro's, I guess, reputation was somewhat muddied a bit by all those things like Rocky and Bullwinkle films and so on that he kind of started cashing in later on and even a few direct-to-DVD ones in more recent years. A few, t- like 10 a year. Yeah, 10 a year, exactly. But I recall going to the cinema and thinking this is only six years after Heat, which is one of my favourite and your favourite films of all time. Ed Norton, I loved American History X and Fight Club. Marlon Brando, well, he's a legacy in his own right. And um, I just recently finished film studies and obviously sent a lot of his work in like Apocalypse Now. So, and also, I guess me being a huge heist film fan, this was like the film to see. And I saw it at independent, kind of a mainstream cinema, but with like kind of Art Deco design in Sydney. It's called the Randwick Ritz. And um, yeah, great cinema. And to sort of see it in an Art Deco style cinema with these three acting titans, this type of film with a classic music score and so on was just magical. Like I can actually recall vividly to this day sitting here, I think, you know, halfway back in the middle and just the whole experience of watching those guys unfold on screen. So Really? It's yeah, For this yeah, specific recall, movie. Wow. Yeah, I love this film. We'll get to it in my review. Wow, okay. Uh, I recall nothing about actually seeing it. I know it's oh, really? at the cinema. It just sort of washed over me. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Like I actually recall seeing Bad Boys 2 at the same cinema in Sydney. And I can recall by my kit, walking into the cinema where we sat exactly, like I think it was like eight rows back and four in. And then actually the entire film I recall and kind of groaning a bit because I actually quite enjoyed Bad Boys 1 and didn't enjoy 2. And then walking home talking about it afterwards. Like it's so weird of all films to remember that cinematic experience. Why the hell is my brain chosen to remember Bad Boys 2? I think everybody knows where they were the first time they saw Bad Boys 2. <laughs> I think that's like it's a given. Yeah, exactly. Let's jump to movie two. So shortly afterwards on the 9th of November 2001, Heist was released. Here's the IMDb synopsis. A career jewel thief finds himself at tense odds with his long-term partner, a crime boss who sends his nephew to keep watch. So, Gabe, talk me through when and how you watched Heist. I reckon I saw this on DVD. I have a sneaking suspicion that it was probably the first David Mamet film I'd seen. I reckon. I may well have seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross on DVD, but I'm pretty certain this was definitely the, yeah, I'm pretty certain this was the first film of his I'd seen. And because of that, I think it's pretty memorable. And I must have watched it about 50 times since. You know, it's one of those movies with such cracking dialogue. You can't, you can just throw it on in the background of anything and there's always something going on in the scene. So, yeah, I think it's one of those movies where I've watched it quite a number of times. Yeah, nice. I had seen his previous film, The Spanish Prisoner. So, we talked before about how I saw a few films whilst working at, at an art house cinema and how that kind of shaped my experience of watching those films. I actually saw the beginning and end of certain films like 50 times when I'd have to open up the cinema to let people in and then go down and open the cinema up to let them out afterwards. And this film came just after I finished at the cinema. So, I'd seen Heist. Sorry, I'd seen The, the Spanish Prisoner probably like- The ending of The Winslow Boy. <laughs> no, 19 actually. times. Seriously, I did. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But The Spanish Prisoner is a film I love. And if there was an opportunity to do a twin movies on that, I would do it in a heartbeat. I can't actually think of any films at the time that came well, out. Well, like a 1997 twisty turny something or other with Steve Martin. Yeah, with a twist of hand, a sleight of hand. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. None jumped to mind. 
But uh, no. so I came to the heist with, I guess, the legacy of that. I actually hadn't seen Glenn Garrick and Glenn Ross. For some reason, that had slipped past me. And I'd known David Mamet as the guy that did another genre film with great cracking dialogue and twists and so on. So for me, Heist was very much in the mould of that type of film and met my expectations as to the type of film he'd deliver. And I think I saw this film, Heist, at an art house cinema on Oxford Street in Sydney, I think, at one of those art house cinemas like the Verona or something, and loved it. But the funny thing is, I find with his films, the dialogue is so self-aware, it's so theatrical. To me, there's a fine line that can pull me out of the film because sometimes David Mamet can be too clever by half. And I remember watching the film but being very aware of its witty banter and dialogue and loving some parts of it, but a few times I kind of winced because it felt just like film theatre, which I, I mean, know is going right. to- It's very theatrical, right? I yeah. Mean, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, David Mamet's like one of the sort of most famous American playwrights, Pulitzer Prize winner. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the dialogue definitely does feel- quite stagey. I mean, I really like that. You know, they're a phony medium. It is fake. I love it when writers do stuff that has a certain kind of rhythm or style that doesn't necessarily feel realistic. Why don't we uh, segue now into our review of Heist First, shall we, and our impressions of that film, what we like and don't like above about it. So, you go first. Talk to me, I get the impression that of these two films, Heist is your favourite. So, why is that? Oh, definitely. Like I said earlier, Almost every single scene, there's some great bit of dialogue. I really like the way that the titular heists are staged. They feel low-key enough to be quite believable and well thought out in their kind of planning and execution compared to modern heist movies. I mean, it's so weird to say modern about a movie made in 2001 versus a movie made in 2001. Things like Ocean's Eleven or whatever have these such ridiculously sized heists where they're dodging lasers and doing all these crazy machinations. I really like that the heists in this are small and kind of intricate. You know, that opening one where they create the distraction and Jimmy opened the door and Ricky Jay's holding the books as cover. It's just really great. Gene Hackman, so good to see Gene Hackman in things where he's awesome. I mean, he's awesome in everything, but watching it, it's like one of those things where you forget that you miss Gene Hackman. I don't know about you, but yeah, totally. I miss Gene Hackman. No, I, I totally miss Gene Hackman. I mean, I think this was one of his last films, like he's fourth last film or so. And yeah, I think Welcome to Mooseport was his yeah. last, uh, which, you know. Interestingly, it's like he kind of did a film like that, which ended his career. And for De Niro, that type of film became like the third act of his career, which is kind of sad. Although Hackman didn't kind of depart on the best film, he got out without cashing in some cheap and nasty paychecks, I think. Yeah, I think he just lives in a property somewhere and writes like espionage books or something. Yeah, he like apparently like rides an electric bike around a small little town and just- uh, What, an electric lives, bike? Yeah, lives like a, oh, a kind of very casual retired lifestyle yeah. and he just got out. He just basically, I guess a bit like Sean Connery, just decided, I'm done. You know, like most people retire in their mid-60s, I'm that age. Uh, all right, we're, we're done. <laughs> yeah, maybe filmmaking sort of changed or maybe he saw the- change on the horizon, you know, and thought they're going to sort of stop making the sort of movies he'd like to be in. I don't think so, because he retired around 2004, about three years after this film. And that was before Iron Man in 2008 and Dark Knight was in, what, 2008 too? Yeah, although, so- although you said Sean Connery, and I think Sean Connery retired off the back of, what was that 
League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Which was a turd. That was around early 2003, <laughs> okay. wasn't it? Yeah. What year was that? 2003. And I think he retired off the back of that sort of saying, like, he just doesn't understand this filmmaking process anymore. Like, yeah. there was just something about it. Maybe it was just sort of green screening or the movies were sort of becoming a little vapid or whatever. So, maybe Hackman felt the same. Yeah. The funny thing is, I can understand that if they retired when digital came in and film fell by the wayside as a way of recording the medium. I can understand this was, like, let's say, three years into the Marvel reign or after The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. That makes sense to me, but- it seems that there was actually this window of time in the early 2000s. I mean, just think about it. There's actually a book called Best Movie Year in 1999 about all these amazing films that were made like your Fight Clubs, Election, a lot of really influential indie and small-scale Hollywood films. And this film was like only two years after that incredible year. So that's what surprised me is that if he thought things were going downhill then, it went downhill, I guess, from someone like his perspective, much, much faster later on. So he was almost ahead of the curve in some respects. But I do miss him. I agree. I miss him. I wish he was in more films. I'm not sure if he would actually elevate or not or improve upon a lot of the other types of films we have at the cinema now, like a lot of the big spectacle films. But I just miss his presence. I miss his non-characteristic heroic quality. Like he isn't a hero. He's a bit messy. He's morally complex. He's a smart ass. He's almost pushing you as the audience to find him unlikable. Yeah, well, I mean, he just he knows how to throw away a line as well. Every line is just sort of tossed away, and I love it when actors can do that. Yeah, he's absolutely confident on screen. Like, I feel like he knows the dialogue inside and out, and he owns the role. Like, there's no question that I believe him in that role, in that, that particular character. Like, he's miles away from playing Lex Luthor and Superman. Like, I totally buy him as this old thief doing one last heist. And just being jaded, like being jaded by being screwed over by the fence, played by, what's his name, little short guy? <laughs> little short guy. What do you mean? <laughs> Danny DeVito. I was being slightly name provocative. Right. Yeah, oh, him. Come on. I agree with you. You mentioned before some of the cool aspects of it, like I love the cold opening. Both these films have cold openings where you start, and by that I mean that's a screenwriting term, where you start with like a mini action scene at the start to get us kind of hooked into the story, and then you kind of then let the story and the characters more slowly unfold after that before the next big heist after that. And I love that bit where you've got Ricky J with this pile of books that disguise all these little gadgetry underneath. I love the simplicity of the heist. I think both these films have aged really well, which we'll get to, because they're not trying to lean into the technology of the time. You can make this film now or have made it 20 years before 2001, and it would work because it's a character-based film. The crimes are based on things that are timeless, like I think an aeroplane job, putting aside issues in relation to post 9-11 security issues, that feels timeless. Like, stealing gold is timeless, right? Because Totally. But even just, you know, he puts his gun in plastic, puts it in the coffee cup, moves the coffee cup around the metal detector scanner. Yeah, awesome. Because why would they? And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's genius. You could do that, in a, like you say, you could do that in a movie now. Yeah. Like, it's sharp, really sharp. Yeah. It's not like he's sending faxes and using beepers yeah. or something like Mission Impossible where he's, like, putting at Job into some weird search engine that just horribly dates. Yeah. That film. Mission Impossible, you're right. That is really dated in relation to its technology. 100% right. Aussie Mail or some weird AOL. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but it does. Yeah, it, both of these films have none of that, do they? No, they don't. I can't even think of these guys being on payphones, if I think about it really. Like in some films, if you saw someone on a payphone, you'd then think to yourself, oh, if you were a younger generation, you'd think, what is that actual box with a phone in it for a start? And two, you might think, oh, well, that would change now because he or she would have a mobile, a cell phone. But in this film, I can't actually think of a single scene where they're even on the phone. Like, they tend to be, everything's in person. So, when they go to meet up with 
the fence to discuss, you know, the next job and so on. Everything is happening like in a meeting room, you know, like Danny DeVito's across a table. When Sam Rockwell's character comes to meet them, it's in person at the boat shed. Like, I can't yeah, think of I mean, any of the gadgets or anything that in any way- Things on phones are super boring. I mean, the only movie which has really great phone scenes is that Tom Hardy driving movie. Oh, which basically is entire film set on the <laughs> phone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But otherwise, like, who wants to watch two people on phones? You put them in a room. Yeah. It's great. That's it. And I think that's- Isn't that the whole thing, though, about the origins of David Mamet? He's going to be choosing to have characters- spout his dialogue face-to-face so they can kind of react off each other. Hard yeah, to totally. do on a phone call. And do that thing that he always does where the characters repeat the lines of dialogue back. Totally, yeah. Which is such a mammoth classic. It's a funny thing that he does that when the characters do that because I do feel we were talking just recently about John Wick. That's actually a trait that John Wick adopted where essentially the characters are lying and John Wick repeats the line back to him. And I was thinking, where have I heard that before? And then a week later we watch this film and I go, ah, of course. David Mamet. And it kind of also feels a bit smug too. Like it's almost like David Mamet going, I wrote this great line once. You know what? I'll have someone echo it. <laughs> There's not a lot of writers who when you hear dialogue, you can very quickly go, oh, I know who wrote that just by the rhythm or the pattern of the words. Yeah, that's right. Like it's definitely an imprimatur, like an, an imprimatur he puts on his films or on his scripts where you go, that's Mamet. Yeah, I mean, you and I have been screenwriters in the past and still are and we talk about the patter-patter of dialogue. And you rarely use that word patter-patter anymore because no one writes that way. Whereas his stuff is like that. It has a rhythm. And when we discussed other directors, we talk about these people who have a certain visual style. Zack Snyder would say he'd do like a dark, gritty version of superhero film, whatever. But with someone like Met, the style isn't the visual. It's 100% on the page. It's the dialogue. Like, that's his trait. Like, I feel you could pull in Larry Fong, the cinematographer from Zack Snyder films, and do stuff with ramped up slow motion and fast forwarding. But it wouldn't actually add anything to any of these films. These films are entirely captured, I feel. like I mean, he still films his style in some respects, but I just feel that it's very much just capturing what's on the page and everyone's executing on that. Totally. And both of these movies have a kind of like classic quality to them. It's weird to talk about a movie made in 2001 as having a classic quality to it. Here we are, 18 years later. Where did the time go? But, yeah, like they're not all shaky cam or, yeah, they don't have lots of ramping or any of that stuff. They're pretty classically directed. And also, actually, speaking of classically scored, great score in this film. I think any heist film can really live and die by its music. You won't actually have a, a tune, a soundtrack that actually calibrates the tension in the heist. And I don't think this film has a score that draws attention to itself as memorable you might play back later on, like a Hans Zimmer score or something like that. But I certainly think, though, it works in the context of the film. I think you actually yeah, forget about- Yeah, that nice recurring melody. Oh, I love to have recurring character themes. It's fantastic. Yeah, which you don't really see a hell of a lot in movies at the moment. I think scores now are quite droney. And yeah, you're right. This isn't the theme you'd whistle, but it does have themes, motifs. Yes, yeah, yeah. And also, this film has Delroy Lindo. Yeah. Oh, I mean, speaking of actors that aren't used enough, he is just fantastic in this film. I mean, he was in a bit of a sweet spot here, wasn't he? He had a Get Shorty. He was in A Life Less Ordinary. What else did he have going on at the time? Weirdly, it felt like he was in every movie in the sort of mid-90s to early 2000s, although I guess he wasn't. <laughs> but, like, it really felt like, oh, yeah, Delroy Lindo, he's turned up. Uh, what, like, Get Shorty, Broken Arrow. Gone in 60 clockers. Seconds. Gone in 60 Castle. Seconds. Malcolm X. The side of Hatterall's. Devil's Advocate. He's got an uncredited role in that. Ransom. Lifeless Ordinary. Ransom. Broken Arrow, do we say that? Broken Arrow again. 
Congo. Oh, you gotta say it twice. Congo. Oi, watch out. But yeah, like it was awesome seeing um, Delroy Lindo turn up yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Actually, Delroy Lindo has what is the dream face or hairline for an actor. I call it the Bruce Willis effect. You want to go bald early or shave your head early because then you can basically age and look the same all the time. And I think the actors like Bruce Willis and good old Delroy are dream for producers for casting because they look the same 20, 30 years apart, which means if you cast them in a film, people always recognize them straight away and go, oh, it's the guy. He has aged magnificently. Like, he looks almost the same as he did back in 2001. So, weirdly, Danny DeVito and Sam Rockwell, they all kind of look the- <laughs> They all kind of look Yeah. The- I think Sam Rockwell is definitely sort of bathing in some sort of exotic boots milk or something like that because he's aged very well. I think DeVito probably aged badly faster in his life and then has looked the same <laughs> yeah, that's right. since then. And slowed down. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's probably 35 in this film. <laughs> really? Oh, he's not. No, no, no. No, okay. Any uh, nitpicks about this film before we move on to the next review? Anything that didn't work for you, watching it again now or standing up against Heist, that just falls apart slightly? No, I really like it. I mean, not really. Like I said, I can throw this on. What about you? I bet you got a nitpick. What's your nitpick? Look, my nitpick is basically the same thing with any David Mamet film. I think for every seven or eight fantastic lines, there are two that just draw too much attention to themselves for me and take me out of the film. I mean. I don't know, it's a fine line. Like, I generally prefer the whole classic maxim in screenwriting and filmmaking, which is show, don't tell. I love films like Heat, another heist film where a lot of it's done without dialogue. I love great dialogue, but I love it when they can do it without dialogue. And you're on a journey following characters and their actions and so on. David Mamet isn't that guy, but to his credit, if you want to listen to someone that has a really talky film, this is the guy to listen to. So, in that respect, I'm a huge fan of his work. It's just that I naturally skew towards less talky films. But, well, that's a personal taste thing. It's a better world that we live in to have the option of the talky David Mamet film. You want the silent heist movie? Go watch Rafifi. Yeah, exactly. That's 100% it. Like, for example, you don't want every film to be the silent film like Rafifi. You want to actually mix up your uh, avocado with your uh, corn chips. So let's jump over to the score. Talk to me. What worked? What didn't work? What would you improve upon? I don't know. I find this one quite forgettable. Everything in no! this movie- Yeah, totally. And I mean, look, it's good to we disagree. It's kind of just beige. Until I rewatch no, it- No, it, no, no. No one no, could no. have- If someone said, describe to me a scene from memory from the movie The Score, the best I could do is just like, oh, there's those scenes where Marlon Brando and De Niro talk and Brando keeps smirking and he wears a weird jacket. Like, that's all I remember. Yeah, I guess controversially so. Oh, you're breaking my heart. So no, tell me, I'm sorry. Tell me, walk me through it. What doesn't work for you? I guess it's not that anything kind of doesn't work. It's all quite competently done and stuff. It's just- That is such a neg. It's to competent. say something is competently made uh, is like basically saying, well, I guess it has four walls and roof, so I yeah. guess it's a house. I mean, you know, for all the talk of, oh, this is these method actors coming together, Edward Norton sort of choose the scenery for the first couple of scenes he's in to- Borrow the term from uh, Tropic Thunder. He's definitely going full retard. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that. I was going to say he's definitely read this script and thought, this is my Rain Man. Like, he's basically saying, this is Rain Man meets, meets Rafifi. Like, this is my chance to be in a mainstream film, a genre heist film, but basically just do my Rain Man. And but also they, ham something up. Totally. But they get, he gets, like, such a great opportunity to, like, credit where credit's due. 
they set that up at the start so well, that introduction where you meet so De Niro's character, Nick, meeting up with Ed Norton's character. And when he sort of drops the performance and he's like, yeah, hey, Nick. Yeah. He's like, what did you say? Yeah, yeah. 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 And I, yeah. I, but, but we in the audience know he is pretending to do this and he's pretending so hard that, I don't know, it's just like. Okay, go on. Okay. Would it be a better movie if he had been that character for the entire movie? Maybe. Oh, interesting. It'd be a different movie. <laughs> and like at the end, it's a twist. Yeah. But like this is like that primal fear thing where he's probably like, oh, it's like primal fear where he's sort of playing this sort of dual role, but he can double down on it here. And because like in primal fear, he didn't go full. I think that was quite a nuanced performance. But in this, yeah, he's going full. full. R. So I'll tell you what I like about this particular setup. At the very start, when you have him, Nick De Niro's character, buying some bread or something, and it's all done a fantastic sort of wide tracking shot. So you're basically getting that whole visual perspective of, Let's follow this guy in his hometown of Montreal for this moment in time. And so he walks across the road and just encounters that character played by Norton. I love the way that's done because it does feel very incidental. I personally did get caught off guard, as did Nick, when Norton drops that performance. Like, I do. Surely watching it, you didn't think this is who his character is going to be for the whole film, did you? No, but it's just a really nice touch when playing. Brian. So, Norton is the character, Jack, who's a thief, but he's playing the mentally impaired character, mentally challenged character, Brian. When he just does that kind of cool drop of the performance, both for the benefit of the master thief, Nick, and for us, the audience, it's just a nice touch. Look, I get it. It's showy. It's like actor showy, like David Mamet's dialogue in Heist is showy. Get it. Like, it's all kind of like very much to have that gotcha moment. But- I like that. I like that. But, you know, going back to this idea that these are the three titans of method or whatever, De Niro was never a showy actor, except maybe in that movie Flawless where he has a stroke. I would not describe that as showy as much as something. But I would say this film works so because these characters, these actors, I should say, are different types of actors. Like De Niro is more understated. Ed Norton's kind of like going full Tropic Thunder, like full Rain Man. And Marlon Brando is doing some sort of overweight, mumbling, almost retired, bizarre performance wearing sort of weird pajamas and a combination of trench coats and various other sort of garments dragging off him. <laughs> Drapery. Yeah. It always reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where Homer becomes really obese and wears moo-moos. Oh, uh, you you're know? 100% right. You're 100% right. <laughs> it's like, that's Brando in this. I feel like in the back of my brain for the last 20 years, there have been those two concepts and I haven't had to link them together. I've been struggling to, and you're 100% you right. It's Homer Simpson in full Moo dress yeah. meets Marlon Brando. That's fantastic. And it is worth seeing the score just for Brando because, yeah, you're right, he's just he's doing some odd things and it's unsurprising that him and Frank Oz, the director, got into it over it. Yeah, it is interesting. Having watched this film many times before and followed some of the backstory about how they fought – in the production. And pretty quickly after the film was released, Frank Oz has tried to talk that down and just sort of played it off as being the creative experience and that's just the way it works. And he blamed himself for not being empathetic or understanding Brando's method and so took responsibility for that. But he was directing from like a broom closet, right? Wasn't he like or directing by proxy via De Niro? Like what's the- Yeah, I think some of the backstory is that basically Brando's methodology means that he finds the character as he goes and essentially Frank Oz was much more script-based and didn't really understand this methodology. So at a few points, I think for two scenes allegedly, basically Frank Oz is off stage with a headset and watching it in Video Village, which by the way, 
isn't actually that unusual for many directors no, to do totally. full-time anyway. And then basically it was just sort of radioing things in and going via the second AD, the second assistant director to De Niro, who was acting in the scene with Brando. So I guess if you're a lay person, don't understand the filmmaking process, that might sound kind of distant or remote, but it's pretty common for a director to be elsewhere outside a set a scene anyway. So it's not that dramatic. And apparently that was only for a few scenes anyway. Which could have happened, you know, over a few days over on a shoot that takes, what, 14 weeks. Yeah, but Brando might have only been on set for a couple of days. I mean, all of his scenes are basically in that one bar location. And Yeah, know. maybe you're right. Maybe it's the case that they shot Brando's scenes in one week. It was a nightmare week and then they got and on also, with but Brando, the rest like, of the film. Find your character along the way. You're playing a fence. Your name is Max. You're not peeling back the layers of an onion, mate. You're not bloody Pierre Gint here. You want them to do the job. They don't want to do the job. You convince them to do the job. That's your character. It's not rocket surgery. Yeah, I agree. I didn't understand from reading the background of these fights. I couldn't quite understand what was so unique about this character that Brando had to get into a huge fight and find the essence of this character. I mean, you're right. He's a fence. He is asking a guy to do a job. He's appearing for a few minutes in the entire film. He's not actually hiding any major secrets in his particular character. Like, it, it's not that dramatic. When there's a revelation that he's in for a bit of debt with another criminal, but it's not a game changer in terms of how his motivation should come across on screen, how Brando should render that performance. So, I don't know. I, maybe he wouldn't not- wear funny hats. Like, maybe it was just some dumb thing, like, you know, just done- He was wearing curtains. He was already Moreau. wearing- Well, actually, he was wearing funny hats and he was wearing curtains, That's basically. True. So, maybe there's that. I mean, there are things he does. As I was re- re-watching this film, I was thinking, okay, how much of this is improvised in this take? Like- was it a case that he would improvise in rehearsals over and over and then basically by the time they put action in the particular take, he already had the words ready, which he'd improvised minutes before on the day? Or is he actually improvising in the actual cut as they go? And I was but watching and thinking, th- I don't think so. I mean, he snaps his fingers and makes noises like and stuff like that. But nothing seemed to be like so dramatic to catch De Niro's character off guard to thus realise a genuine moment of shock or anything like that on screen. And also, even if you're improvising in the scene, the the scenes with Brando and De Niro are fairly functional in that, you know, it's not like it's a really famous improv scene, Taxi Driver, where De Niro goes out to with um, Jodie Foster and they're having that long chat at the diner, which is really about the two characters kind of figuring out who each other are. And you go, oh, yeah, that could be very improvisational. This is like... Again, it's like a fence saying to a thief, oh, it's, I'm really glad you're doing the job. Okay. How many ways do you want to improvise around that stuff? Yeah, I agree. I mean, do you think there's a version of this film that works if you edited Brando out? Would it make much uh, difference? I mean, you need Brando to basically convince Nick De Niro to do the score, okay? And you need, I guess, Brando to kind of bring in this young buck played by Norton and convince- De Niro, you know, to get over himself and do this one last job in his own town with this unknown guy, which means all the stakes are higher. I think you probably need him, but I don't think – I think many actors could do this role and it would not make any difference at all. Yeah, totally. He's not in it massively, but he's in it enough so they can put his name on a poster to convince an audience perhaps to come and see it. Yeah, that's true. So then circling back to the younger generation, back to Morton, do you think it would work if he actually did play his Rain Man-like character for the entire film with a sudden twist perhaps at the end when he pulls – basically, we find out at the same time as the cleaner Danny that he's actually 
not mentally challenged. I don't think it would work because you'd lose so many scenes in between. That's right. And there's, he's got too many scenes with just De Niro or whatever. And I don't believe De Niro's character has to be convinced to do one last heist would then be like, well, I'm going to do it with this guy. Yeah, totally. You yeah, know, yeah. Given he's so like discerning a thief. Yeah. I feel like- It'd actually, be a funny movie though. Yeah. I, I think that not only is Norton really thriving doing the um, you know assistant cleaner who's mentally challenged, but even when he's not doing that, he enjoys a few- great moments being full Norton, like, you know, when he's shirtless after his run and then he does like a few sort of, you know, moves the baseball bat to try and take out the heavy that De Niro is employed to try and take Norton down. Like, I think he's enjoying being really cocky, really smug, really ahead of the curve when he's doing full, what's the character's name? When he's not Brian, when he's Jack. Jack. Leaning into Brian when he's playing the hearing impaired version of himself. So, I think he's loving, as Michael Mann would say, the duality of the character. Duality. He was definitely one of those actors who liked to be our act as, like, the smartest guy. In all of his movies, he was, like, the smartest guy. Yeah, you're right. If you think about films like, uh, let's say, Fight Club, he admits being fl- – he's, like, he's flawed and he admits he's got problems, but he also feels like he's above everyone else in the office he works with. American History X, he reforms himself in that character. He's a smart guy there, even though he's a skinhead racist. You're right. And – or it's just like his vibe. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, don't think he's the smartest guy in his directorial debut with Ben Stiller. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was that called? Keeping the Faith. Oh, Keeping the Faith. Terrible. He's actually um, he's been in a lot less movies maybe than you think, though. I think so. I mean, I think what's amazing is he had this amazing late 90s, early 2000s run. But if you go to films like, I think it was, what's that film he was in, Leaves of Grass, which I think he might have directed. That's a long uh, time ago. Kim Blake Nelson directed that? Ah, okay. There's an example of a great actor who unfortunately had bad luck with his films being seen that he directs. But uh, True. Yeah. So, okay, I'm looking at IMDb now. Keeping the Faith is in 2000. Pretty fair to say it's at the height of his powers. He's done all these films that have very contemporary social themes and then does this kind of oddball rom-com. And he's not known as being someone who's – wearing his, you know, Irish Catholicism on his sleeve, but he plays a priest there in this kind of religious, romantic drama. And then there's nothing else until this year, 2019, he's got Motherless Brooklyn coming out, where he has an all-star cast of Bruce Willis, Willem Dafoe, uh, Leslie Mann, Alec Baldwin, Bobby Carnival, Michael Kenneth Williams, and a few others. But that's 19 years between films. And he hasn't done much in the last 10 years at all. So, I think you're right. I think we think he's done a lot more than he actually has. And again, maybe you sort of miss him on screen. He was always great when he popped up, in, you know, when he was in stuff. Some of those late 90s, early 2000s performance, they're, they're pretty red hot. He elevates the Bourne legacy, I think, fantastically in a small role there. A fun role in that film, Moonrise Kingdom. He's great there. Oh, yeah. That's but really good, yeah. Pride and Glory. I think he was really good in Incredible Hulk, believe it or not. I thought he was really good in that role. But I just can't think of anything else that's really – I'm the illusionist, which we've discussed in the past. That was a decade ago. More. Anyway. Oh, the Italian job. There you go. 2003. Oh, great. Just 16 years ago. That's right. Uh, a few more things about score before we move on. First of all, like a highest excellent score is in the music itself. I really like the score of the music. I think it's got those repeating riffs that you speak of. I just really like it. I, I can't well, – Howard Shaw. Can't go wrong with Howard Shaw, can you? Yeah, I think he elevates the script and it just works well. Like, this is a recurring theme they have, which I really love. And I love the music they play in the heist, too, to try and ratchet up the tensions. That's great. I think Angela Bassett is incredibly sexy and fantastic in a, such a small role. Like, 
I don't know. Any other actress, I think, would have been almost, I guess, just unrecognized, just not made an impression at all. But in the small role that she has and the role her character has to have in terms of trying to convince De Niro to give it all away and the tension he has between this one last job and her, I just think she's absolutely sensational. Yeah, I mean, she's How great. You? Yeah, she's great whenever she turns up in things, right? Like, Yeah, totally. I love the sense of place in Montreal. I feel like this film takes advantage of that setting. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the film was necessarily made in Canada for tax breaks. I think this film was sort of made in an era before that was kind of more ubiquitous. So you're saying it's a movie that they decided to shoot in Canada but not have Canada double for like, you know, whatever other American city that they just bung in some big- Yeah, yeah or, or shoot it the there. Yeah, I mean, maybe they did make it there for tax breaks, but at least they embraced it being in Montreal. But I don't know, I really feel- they take advantage of that, like the characters with French names that speak French, the sense of, of sophistication, the sense of you don't want to piss in your own backyard if your own backyard is so nice. And Montreal, I think, is realised very seductively. It seems like a very sophisticated Canadian city and something more desirable than, say, I don't know, the Midwest of America or something like that, which does sound culturally snobbish, but I think they're kind of like leaning into the idea that this is a really great place. So be careful about taking a huge risk in your career and being jailed and losing it all when you're so comfortable here. And it's interesting that um, Frank Oz directed this. That's the other elephant in the room, of course. Speak to that. Frank Oz is, what did uh, Marlon Brando like to call him? Miss Piggy. Yeah, yeah. You know, very famous for, did he create the Muppets? He did. I don't know. He created the Muppets. He was the voice and actual puppeteer. So, both of the Muppets, of many Muppets. Yoda. And Yoda. So, He's not the sort of guy you'd expect to do a film without Muppets or puppets. Without Muppets? Yeah. I mean, he did direct, I guess, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is sort of a heist movie. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's very much a comedy, but it has sort of those, you know, they're trying to swindle. They're doing some swindling. Bowfinger's not really a heist movie at all. Though there's a degree of swindle in that too. But yeah, it's a really interesting choice, don't you think, to, to go, well, here's the guy. We want to direct our, I mean, is there any comedy in the score? I don't think so. Well- no, to give an idea as to how out of left field this is, he had The Dark Crystal in 82, Muppets Take Manhattan in 84, Little Shop of Horrors 86, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels 88, What About Bob 91, House in 92, Indian in the Cupboard 95, In and Out. It's in that one with- um, Kevin Klein. It's where he yeah. realises he's gay. Oh, it's a great film. Yeah. So, so far, these are all comedies and he's moved progressively from, I guess, Puppets and Muppets- through to live-action comedy. Then there's Finger in 99, which I love. And then the score in 2001. There's nothing there's this- before the score which indicates that he's the the most obvious choice to do a serious, non-comedic, adult live-action film about a score. I've heard this famous story. There's this kind of famous anecdote about that. And I think one of the producers of the score was out to lunch, and this was before Frank Oz had been hired. And they were trying to find a director. And I think the producer was having lunch or lunch or dinner or whatever with Michael Douglas. And Michael Douglas said, maybe you should talk to Frank Oz. And the producer said, what do you mean? That seems crazy. I mean, I love his movies, but they're all comedy. Then sort of famously, Michael Douglas like leant towards this guy and said, let me tell you something. You know, if I scream at you, fuck you. And you scream back at me, fuck you. That's drama now. Try and make me laugh. Oh, fantastic. Um, That's great. You know, and the same thing was like, yeah, like- he could direct these movies and maybe directing comedy isn't easy. Maybe he has a fantastic skill set that could serve on your deadly serious multi-generational method acting heist movie. 
Yeah, that's great. I hadn't heard that story before. And that suggests that maybe Michael Douglas was initially involved in a producing capacity or may have played the role that De Niro played. But that's a really interesting anecdote. I think he was, yeah, maybe he was circling the project or something, as was Michael Douglas's ways. Yeah, right. Interesting. Do you think Frank Oz tried to infuse this film with some sort of connection to heat to try and increase its credibility? And by that I mean there's a couple of lines in this film which sound directly taken from De Niro's character in Heat six years before. Like there's one where he talks about actually walking away, which almost sounds verbatim the same as Heat. And maybe the screenwriters put that in from the start themselves. But can you recall that line where he says- No, what's the line? Pretty much walk away. Like oh, right. walk away. Because this when, as the film goes on, the risks keep increasing as the circumstances change, as the security improve and extra hurdles get in the way. There's another line too, which sounds like something you'd hear from um, James Cann in Thief, Michael Mann's A Thief, where De Niro's advice is something along the lines of giving advice to Jack's character. He said something along the lines of write a lot of things you want over the next 25 years, then spend that time getting them piece by piece. And that reminded me of that montage, that photo montage that James Cann's character has in Thief. Oh, yeah, like the physical, actual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got. yeah, that he shows up. It's almost the same well idea, isn't it? It's like saying, yeah, this yeah, is my totally. dream. Now let's just keep robbing banks, making money until we fulfill that dream. But as soon as you reach that dream, you pull a pin and you get out. Yeah. Well, I guess if you're making a movie about a thief, you should probably look at one of the best, Thief. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting. I haven't put those two things together. That's yeah, cool. yeah. Um, all right, let's just jump into a quick combined review before we get into our awards. So, noted similarities, call it coincidence or ripoff. I've got one last job. There's oh, yeah. generational warfare between characters, like the young buck played by Sam Rockwell in Heist and Ed Norton's character in The Score. What else? A oh, gold. They're both robbing classic kind of, they're not getting money or trying to get zeros and ones like entrapment. They're trying to get something very classic, gold. They both- Big plot points are getting kind of burnt by security cameras. You know, the security cameras seeing them and that being the kind of it being done, that's the end. Oh, of course, you're right. You yeah, know, that's, you that's know really important. Ed Norton makes De Niro take his balaclava off and uh, Hackman gets seen by the security cameras in the opening heist. So, I, don't, I mean, obviously, if you're a thief and your face is plastered everywhere, that's probably going to impact your career. Yeah, but, that's um, true. That sort of stood out for me. The old thief doing one last job. I mean, that's a perennial classic, isn't it? Is there any yeah, other kind, I guess, you know? Yeah, it's totally the idea of, I mean, One Last Job is one of the classic ones. And I think having the young buck perhaps trying to throw you off the mantle as you're towards the end and basically calling you on your age, I think kind of really amplifies that sense of retirement. Like, am I pushing the envelope too much? Am I in going for one last job and this person saying to me, hey, mate, maybe you've lost it. Maybe you're too far past it. Am I just risking too much too late? Yeah, totally. Dramatically, it works, I guess, right? Like, it gives it stakes. No one cares about the third job. Yeah, that's it. I think also bank. it works with uh, the score particularly. I like the idea where Angela Bassett's character basically says to him, look, I'll come here for you. I'll give my career for you, but I'm not going to be here if in five years from now you're behind bars. Like, I will change my life for you if you change my life, your life for me. And that to me, I think that character, uh, that romantic side ramps up the stakes because he's not just risking being behind bars for himself. He's risking breaking her heart as well, which I think increases the overall tension. Like it's not just about being selfish, it's about other people as well. I don't think you have that in the same way in a heist as such, do you? No, I mean Hackman wants to get away with Rebecca 
Pigeon's character. But because they're always, because that has this kind of very constantly shifting allegiance thing where, you know, you think she's double-crossed him and left with Sam Rockwell. Yeah, I guess it's not quite as pronounced as in the score. Yeah, that's it. How about which film is better? I would say they've both aged beautifully by sticking to strong characterisation and avoiding tech trends. How about you? 100%. I guess there's certain technology that we have now that didn't exist back then, but nothing sticks out in sort of horribly dated original Tron or something. (laughs) Why? And I think, yeah, it's great because the films are quite classically executed. Yeah, I agree. Okay, how about any plot holes or missed opportunities? What could the filmmakers have done better with the high concept? I've got one. I'm a bit confused, and spoilers here for our listeners who haven't listened to Watch Heist. The pickup at the end, which has the real gold in it. So what's unclear to me re-watching this film is we see him take off at the end and as he takes the truck, the pickup truck, out of the building, having ostensibly lost um, the gold to Sam Rockwell's character, Rebecca Pigeon. He drives away and then one of the bars scrapes across a beam and thus peels away black paint, revealing that the bars of metal in the back of the pickup truck are actually gold. But did he actually have two pickup trucks full of gold? And if not, why was he painting bars of gold black in the first pickup truck that Sam Rockwell and Rebecca Pigeon take with them, making you think that he's lost all his gold to these people who betrayed him? Don't they put the fake engine in the back of the van that Rebecca Pigeon has because that van crashes and all of the little boxes that are supposed to have the gold actually turn out to have those washers or whatever they are in them? Yeah, but what's your point though in relation to the pickups at the end? Is there two? Yeah, so this is the part we'll get to in the Memento Award, is in Things I've Forgotten. So at the very end of the heist, he's there with his pickup truck and he's painting these beams of metal black. You actually don't see these painting gold black. He's just painting like the last coat of black on black for these metal beams in the pickup truck. Sam Rockwell and Rebecca Pigeon turn up and it's revealed that Rebecca Pigeon, in that kind of classic femme fatale way, has betrayed him. And I think it's from, was it a classic Hitchcock film, which Mission Impossible 2 ripped off, that whole idea of, was it North by Northwest? Or it's that whole idea of sending the gal out to try and get information or seduce the criminal, but then the gal falls for the criminal. You know, that that kind of storyline, right? So he's basically playing on that trope and it turns out that now Rebecca Pigeon has actually literally and figuratively gone to bed with the criminal who's betraying them, Sam Rockwell. And they take off in the pickup and thus you think, oh, they've taken off with the gold. And then you see our mate, Jim our Hackman, mate. get into his right. pickup, okay. yeah, get into our pickup and take off. But he has the gold. So Is that, is that my- where they think that the gold is on the boat railings? Is it that? No, bit? it's past that. This is why I think it's a bit clever by half. So I think we're at a stage where we think at the end he's painting bars of gold black and then just as he's about to finish painting them black and leave, Rebecca Pigeon and Sam Rock will turn up and then take those gold bars off his hand and drive off into the sunset with his gold. But then he hops into another pickup truck which has more black bars in it and drives off and then as they scrape the side you see the gold underneath and realise actually he's okay, there are bars of gold in his back. So my question is, is there gold in both pickup trucks? No, I think, no, when Fran turns up and hooks up with Jimmy, I think they leave with no gold. So what (laughs) happens to be, by sheer coincidence, at that particular minute or that particular day and that particular week, deliberately painting bars of metal black to make them think 
that it's the gold and they just happen to turn up at that time and take that with them. Okay, it's a fair point. I didn't notice this, I guess. Well, I've seen that film like 20 times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And now yeah. I think about it, it doesn't make any sense okay. whatsoever. That's fair. Okay. Dang you, David Mamet. Damn you. All right, let's jump into the awards. Okay, so which movie do you think was the box office champ? Probably the score, right? All right, so the score had a budget of $68 million and a domestic gross of $71 million with a foreign gross of $42.5 million. So, therefore, on a $68 million budget, it did a total of $113.5 million worldwide. So, $113.5 on 68. In contrast, the heist, $39 million budget, tragically only $23.5 million domestically in the States, plus an extra $5 million foreign. So, a worldwide total of $28.5 million on a $39 million budget. Not a box office champ. I should note, though, that the score actually opened at number two behind what I would argue is an even better heist film, Legally Blonde. (laughs) About young Reese Witherspoon pulling off the heist of her character's career by taking... I'm going to say Harvard, whichever law school she goes to. Yeah, it's actually, actually really great. It's, it's actually a really great movie. There's actually a film we're going to do, another twin movies, actually called Stealing Harvard, which is a twin movie about basically robbing and doing a bit of a score or a coup on your marks at college. We'll get to that. We'll do it with Legally Blonde? No, Legally the film's actually movie. called Stealing Harvard with Jason Lee, oh. the guy made famous in the Kevin Smith films. Okay. Well, if you want to talk about Legally Blonde at some point, I'm down. <laughs> okay. So, interestingly enough, the score totally won over Heist. Interestingly, though, get this. This blows my mind. Heist generated $72 million in home video rentals in the United States alone. Oh, wow. Where'd you get that info from? That's really interesting. Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, right. But usually that's really difficult to find because a lot of these movies we talk about, people go, oh, what was the opening weekend or what was the box office grosses? And then you got these little metrics. They go, it needs to make double or triple or, yeah, or whatever. Oh, yeah. Exhibitors get half, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, yeah I mean, oftentimes you, you don't go, well, yeah, what was the- What's the tail end of what's- Yeah, totally. The rights and box office or the rights and the monetization down the track. I mean, I've got to say, Heist had a budget of $39 million. I don't know. I mean, I don't think I see 39 million on screen. No, it seems high, right? That scene with the plane, the heist on the Swiss plane, I can see a lot of money going in there. But for the rest of the film, we're talking we're in a boat shed, we're in a house, like it seems pretty high. Like that must be basically on salaries and producing fees. Totally. Because I mean, in nowadays dollars, that would be- I look, I don't know, but substantially more. And yeah, I mean, what was Gene Hackman getting $19 million to be in it? Weird. I know. Because everything else, like little forest roads, you know, or did they pay Patty LePune? Totally. $7 million for her two scenes? No stunts at all. There's this, even a scene where there's an explosion, but it's a very contained explosion on a, appears to be like a miniature, or it's a very simple explosion involving just sort of like this small little shed blowing up. Like, again, not something that would actually eat into the budget much at all. So, do you think the first film, the score, helped or did the box office of the heist that came five months later? Did it doing well affect that? I don't know. It's hard to tell with these sorts of films. I don't think the score ate heist lunch. I don't think the films came out close lunch. enough to each other. It heisted its lunch. Yeah, exactly. Opening. Lifted its Stole lunch. It. <laughs> I think basically those films weren't competing with each other in the sense that they weren't aimed at the same market. I don't think the idea of a heist film is so similar that it appeared that one was imitating the other. And just different- Everything about the, those films, like one seems like a classical Hollywood film, the other one films like feels like an indie type film by 
who it was, a theatre director. So, right. And, I mean, Ocean's Eleven came out that year as well. Oh. Did it eat up a bunch of these other movies? Yeah, yeah. You know, The Fast and the Furious Part 1, not so much a heist movie as much as a Hoonan film. But back when that's what they were about. Nowadays, they're like the dumbest heists imaginable in like totally. a great way. But back then, it was just about getting fully sick, going down to Stanmore Mackers. Yeah, but you are right, though, to have like all those films like Fast and Furious, Ocean's Eleven, Heist, and Score all in one year. Swordfish, same year. Yep, that's a lot of robbing. Yeah, that's right. Where people all robbed out. Exactly. All right, let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes scores. So, which movie impressed the critics? Do you want to have a stab in the dark? I'd say they both got pretty good reviews. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the score, 73% with critics Rotten Tomatoes versus Heist on 66%. i got to say, I would have thought the score's 73%, which is considered fresh on the tomato meter, I am surprised it actually higher than the score at 66%. I just thought that critics would just love the witty patter-patter of dialogue of Mehmet and find it was more character-based and thus, I guess, more interesting. So I'm surprised it's lower, to be honest. Do you think if it came out today, it would be much higher, right? Yeah, I think basically any film that comes out today, that's not a – yeah, that's right. Someone said in relation to that film, Hell or High Water, when that came out two years ago or so, which is basically a modern Western – it was considered a great film. If that film cut 20 years ago, it'd be a good film. Totally. That's where we're at. The market's changed so much that when we see something that is better than what's around it, it just elevates it and makes it seem so much better than what it probably actually is. Totally. So, with the popcorn crowd, the audience gave the score, a score, of 66% and Heist got 60%, which doesn't surprise me. One feels more adult and sophisticated than the other. These sites didn't exist when these movies came out. So, the people rating these on Rotten Tomatoes now, and again, it goes back to the thing like who rates movies on Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah, yeah. Weirdos. Weirdos. All right, let's jump to the awards. The Best Dialogue Award. Fair to say, of all the twin movie reviews we'll be doing, I totally feel we could spend like an hour talking about which film won this one because- What? No, one well, movie clearly no. wins. Oh, uh, well, one movie clearly wins, but the question would be which line in that movie. So, oh, I think we yeah, agree. Yeah, totally. Heist definitely, without even going through the lines, Heist definitely wins for Best Dialogue Award. Would you agree? Definitely. Okay. So, let's just give the score a chance. Any particular fake lines, any line readings at all? You give me yours. What do you like? Well, the one I mentioned before, which was Nick Wells saying to Jack- Want my advice? Make a list of everything you want now and the next 25 years getting it slowly, piece by piece. And then also the scene when they're looking at those plans, which the audience doesn't see, and it's basically hinting to what will happen later on down the track where De Niro's been inspired by seeing an exploding beer keg and has the idea to try and use water pressure to blow the safe open. And he's showing these plans to Jack, but weirds that the audience don't see. And Jack says, I've never seen anything like that. Whatever mind. And Nick says, I don't know, but if somebody can build it, someone can unbuild it. I just like yeah, that. Yeah, that's like the it, line I remember. It's just so Me. simple, right? It's just like it's one of those things where it doesn't even need to make sense, but you get it as a viewer. Like if you can build, of course, you can unbuild it. It just kind of cuts through and makes it possible. Mm. So how about heist? Yeah. Okay. Best lines. So is he going to be cool? My motherfucker is so cool when he goes to bed. She Count him. him. Yeah. Oh. Great line. Boom. Oh, great. What else? Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. That line is so funny um, because it makes no fucking sense. That was great. But it's just great. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. 
What's the line at the beginning when he's like, gold makes the world go round? And oh, he's right. like, some say love, yeah, love of gold. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing yeah. that one. But, oh, man. Like, I love that line uh, about uh, Rebecca Pigeon's character where he says of her, where she, sorry, he says of her, she could talk her way out of a sunburn. Oh, I yes, love right. that. <laughs> um, nobody lives forever. Frank Sinatra gave it a shot. Yeah, yeah. You know why the chicken crossed the road? Because the road crossed the chicken. Like, Again, it makes no sense. It makes no it's sense. Great. What's the lady seeing you anyway? I'm resilient. So's Gumby. Yeah, <laughs> right. I that live where Pinky says, it's a shame. You know what? We didn't actually get to the thing. The Swiss job. It's a beautiful plan. Cute, huh? Cute as a pail full of kittens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Delroy Lindo has this awesome story. And he's talking to Sam Rockwell and he's talking about a guy who was a, wore a Bible in his jacket. And he's like, that Bible stopped a bullet. And then he says this line where he's like, and if that guy had been wearing a Bible in front of his face, he'd be alive today. And it's such a corker. <laughs> like it is so it is so great, that little bit of dialogue. And that's the great um, thing is that you've got these great actors with great dialogue. It's just a perfect combination. Oh, yeah. And the way, you know, Ricky Jay is in this as one of the sort of, sort of criminal associates. And he does Mammoth's dialogue really well when he's talking about the Swiss making these clocks with the two little cocksuckers that come out and ha- hit each other. It's just <laughs> so good. fantastic. Yeah. It's, it, this movie is, like, as we say some of these out loud, yeah, some of them, are, they sound kind of dumb or whatever. But, man, when you get Hackman saying these or Delroy, Lindo's saying these lines. Yeah. It's just oh, it's magic. Yeah. They talk about people being so entertaining that when they read the phone book, it's just amazing. Better than the phone book is Mamet's dialogue in a heist film. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, as Pinky would say. Let's get to the winner winner chicken dinner award. Who came out top in each of these movies? For the score, I had Ed Norton and Heist, I had Gene Hackman and David Mamet. How about you? I would agree. I'd- so if you were to put, say, of those two movies back to back, who comes out higher, do you think? I'm thinking Mamet for Heist over Norton in the score. Yeah. All right. We agree. Let's jump we to Tommy agree. Lee Jones' Stiller Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee Jones in a supporting role in The Fugitive, where he blew Harrison Ford off the screen and was rewarded with an Oscar. So, who stole the show against all odds in these twin movies because their role was so small and underwritten, but they rose above it? So starting yeah, with the sort of score, tough one on these, isn't it? I mean, I'd I love, say the um, score, Angela Rando. Oh yeah, yeah. let's give it to let's give it to Angie because I just think in the role that she has, she's not underwritten, but I think she elevates it beyond the role. How about Heist? I had Ricky Jay. I like Sam Rockwell. Oh yeah, okay. He's just okay. playing his classic sleaze. Yeah, <laughs> which but, I mean, kind of is, feels like what he did a lot in those days. Just, I know, just oily. There's always that part like where oily, he was, yeah. or, sort of wondered if it was him just been great his role or was it was he sort of channeling a deep-seated part of his personality <laughs> totally i'm yeah, giving it to uh angela bassett overall great all right fair done. now we have the chewing the scenery award which we're yet to name any ideas for a name for the chewing the scenery award oh, we haven't name? no we, have we name. haven't named that no we need to name after someone who's famous for chewing scenery and i wouldn't uh, say nick cage because nick cage to me he yells at scenery. <laughs> Gary Oldman, he's a scenery chewer. Okay. He would name it after his character in that um, 1990s film, State of Grace. He does a lot of scenery chewing in that. I haven't seen that. Very Okay. Maybe it's a niche name for a Okay. War. But he, he does chew a lot of scenery in, um, what's that film with Christian Slater? The classic uh, Tony Scott. True romance. True romance. This week we'll call it like the Drexel Award. Yeah, the Drexel Award. Okay. Well, that, that'll do this week. The, it, it beats the, the, the uh, Jackie Flannery Award. That doesn't mean anything, does it? Is he from that film you mentioned before? Yeah. He does. Let's call it, yeah, Drexel. Yeah. I've gotten the score, Marlon Brando, and heist Rebecca Pigeon. It's Marlon Brando, but I can't remind I don't know. I think Rebecca Pigeon is really chewing the scenery a lot doing this whole femme fatale character. I feel that 
She doesn't have a look that would be classic for that character and then is really trying to push the sexy. Like the short cropped hair and Yeah, and the short little shorts. I don't know. I don't think she's best cast for this film and even though she's very good and I obviously she's Dave Mamet's wife. I just don't think she'd be the first person I'd cast in this role, but she's doing the best that she can with it. But I do feel she chews the scenery a lot when she's in it. Well, I can't comment on what Marlon Brando was wearing because apparently he would turn up not wearing pants. Oh, wow, okay. So they oh, couldn't Marlon shoot, Brando- shoot him below the waist. So I'm going to give it to any actor who sits opposite De Niro with his dick out. Marlon Brando it is. Okay. Now, we did have the next award called the Edward Furlong Award, and it was named after the person who didn't make the most of their opportunities after the smash hit of one of their early films. Yeah, damn it. But we've been looking to try and rename this award by someone else. Any ideas? Who do you have? How about we call it the Jan Michael Vincent Award? Who's that? Jan Michael Vincent. He was in. Um, he was that TV actor in bloody Airwolf or whatever, and then he pissed it away. It's like an alcoholic and a heroin addict. Jan All Michael right. Vincent. So I think to actually be named out this award, you actually have to okay. be. You have to actually to be so famous. What do that you actually, mean? Well, Edward Furlong. Everyone would go, "Oh yeah, he's the guy from Terminator 2. What's he done since? I don't think you hear Jan Michael Vincent and go. Oh, Airwolf he's the, the guy. Most popular TV show, 1984 to 1987. Who's the guy? Who's the guy in MASH Jan with Michael the glasses Vincent. who was kind of, what was he called Beaker? Mash? Yeah. Was it Beaker? Beaker. Radar? Radar. Is that him? Yeah, Radar. That's not Jan Michael Vincent. No, no, I'm just saying, I think Radar would be a better choice than Jan Michael Vincent. Everyone knows who Radar no. is. No, they don't. All right. Every- so, in terms Airwolf. of this award winner, I had um, two possibilities for the score. I had Paul Souls, who plays Danny, the janitor. Oh, yeah. It's great. He is so good. He invokes so much sympathy. Totally. And I kind of wondered why he wasn't in something recognisable after that. Like, I thought he was just really good in a small role. And I would like to have seen him in something after this film, but I don't feel I've seen him in anything where I've gone, oh, that's Danny from the score. So, I had him. I also had Angela Bassett, who didn't really take advantage of this opportunity or her agents didn't maximise it for her to really kick on with any roles for about five, six, seven years after this film. By the way, Paul Souls, he was old, but he's still alive. 1930, he's born. He's apparently in a, a show called My 90-Year-Old Roommate. I presume he's playing the 90-year-old roommate. He's like almost 90, yeah. He's like yeah. 89, born 1930. That's right. Yeah. He was great. He was really good in it, isn't he? They didn't cast someone famous, and I really think that if he wasn't empathetic enough towards the character of Brian, who's played by the character of Jack, played by Ed Norton, it wouldn't work. But I think right. he makes work really well. And for Heist, I had Rebecca Pigeon because sure. for maybe she made choices for family or wanted to only star in her husband's films. But I thought she could have actually used this opportunity to launch her career into more of a mainstream category and didn't. But overall, I'm giving it to, sadly, to poor souls who played Danny in the score. How about you? I think that's a fair award to give out. All right, let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big League Award, named after American indie actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck, who seized the opportunity to jump from the indie films Sling Blade and Goodwill Hunting to launch a Hollywood career with Armageddon. So, Gabe, who jumped into the big screen with his films? I had Sam Rockwell from the yeah. score. Even though he'd been in Charlie's Angels before, I think he kind of like really, this really pushed his- Sorry, Sam Rockwell from Heist, I should say. This was just after Charlie's Angels. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, Charlie's Angels came out in 2000, right? Yeah. He's definitely one of those guys who you'd sort of seen in stuff. And he definitely come from that sort of like indie, you know, he's in Basquiat, Box of Moonlight. 
Jerry and Tom. A lot of these movies are probably absolutely impossible to find these days. That's right. I think it was this film and Charlie's Angels where he took all those indie roots and then just kind of went into more mainstream. Whether you could credit Heist for that, though, I'm not sure. Yeah, true. Nonetheless, we're better for it. Yeah. And I think David Mamet did to some degree as well and that he'd come from indie roots and this was probably his biggest budget and he he advantage of it by hiring great actor in Gene Hackman. So, how about the score? Did anyone come from the indie world and you know, make a splash in the score? Apart from the three leads and maybe Gary Farmer, who is kind of quite memorable in Ghost Dog. Who's oh, he no, playing? He's not memorable in Ghost Dog. He, gets, he just turns up and gets shot. He's very memorable in Dead Man. He's the henchman. In Dead Man, he's the um, Native American who guides yeah, yeah, Johnny yeah. Depp oh. through all of the – through his death, I suppose. I'd have him as the winner oh. in that case. This was a big film for him to be in. Yeah, but apart from the rest of the cast, you know, if you look at it on, say, IMDb, they're presumably all Canucks. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's, yeah. You can say that, right? Canuck, isn't I'm not it? sure. I don't, I don't know. know. That's like saying Aussie <laughs> or if it's offensive. Yeah. All right. well, sorry, Canadians. <laughs> to Wikipedia and uh, Google later on. So, Sam Rockwell versus- Gary Farmer. Gary Farmer. We've got to give it to, give it to Sam Rockwell. All right, Sam Rockwell. All right. The Stephen Toblowski Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy Award, named after the iconic supporting actor Stephen Toblowski, who has appeared in over 206 films and TV shows, and many know him as the insurance salesman Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which actor triggered, hey, it's that guy, when he or she appeared on screen, starting with the score? I don't know. Again, score really doesn't have much of a cast beyond. So, for me, it's just Gary Farmer, I suppose. It's like, oh, yeah. the guy from Dead Man. Yeah, I think there Gary Farmer as well. For some reason, him. Jamie Harold, who plays Stephen the Hacker, I find recognisable, but I think it's more the character, not the actor. Yeah, right. But there is yeah, one. What's... I'm going to blow your mind. Okay. Mark Cancho. Who plays Wait, the who? Iron? So you know the Ironclad tech who's in a fight with Stephen the Hacker, and they meet the, in the park, and he brings. Oh, he's an actor who's in both. Yes, he plays a security guard. Bingo. Is that right? or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Mark Canacho yeah, totally. plays the Ironclad technician's cousin, who brings a gun and Ed sort of pulls it on Ed Norton, and he's getting a bit kind of nervous and twitchy during this deal in the park, in the score. And in Heist, he plays the jewellery store guard at the sub. Ah, there you go. For me, it's going to be Mark Camacho. I mean, to okay. hear him both to Mark Camacho. He's not picking up awards left, right and centre. Here's his, here's his shot. This is his only award. Okay. Go Camacho. A very lonely, small podcast. All right, let's jump to the Emphis Reigns Award as we bring it home, named after the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. So, Gabe, which character steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Well, no one in the score has ludicrous names, do they? No, they're all straighty 180. Push that out of the way. And I guess in the highest we got Pinky. Yeah, Pinky. But for me, it's Jimmy Silk. I agree. It's only Pinky, and Pinky's actually a nickname anyway. Jimmy Silk sounds like what he is, a smarmy mobster who's just – and Jimmy sort of sounds young as well. So, I agree, Jimmy Silk. All right, that's a winner. All right. Next award, the Die Hard and the Building Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero who's up in a group of baddies in a single location. So, if imitation is the ultimate flattery, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? I would say no. I'd say a heist is a heist is a heist. And even though there were three heist films we spoke of in this one year, The Score, Fast and Furious, Ocean's Eleven and Heist, I don't think these films did a spin on the heist that was so unique that when another film came down the track, everyone went, oh, that's a ripoff of the score or heist. 
Yeah, hundred percent. They're both really good heist crime films, but that neither of them feel particularly genre defining or or do anything that's like which you have never seen. Yeah, I agree. The milking the speed car dry ward, which we still must rename. Named no, this is the best name for an award. It's so it conjures so many thoughts. <laughs> named after the infamous sequel Speed Two, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, could you make a sequel to either of these films? And if a gun was pressed against your forehead and you had to, how would you do it? So, starting with the score. Well, interestingly, I think either of these films could actually be the sequel to each other. Oh, if you just yes, had Hackman right. in De Niro's role or vice versa, because all you need is the character to get drawn out of retirement. So, you know, the heist could finish and then Marlon Brando's character waddles over and says, hey, Gene Hackman, i got a new one for you, or he passes Edward Norton in the street, and these could be their own sequels. Yeah, I agree. I think actually one of the best examples of a sequel to a heist film is actually After the Sunset. Oh, yeah. That film with Piers Brosnan and what's her name? Uh, Summer Hake. Yeah, and Woody Harrelson. So that was directed by a director who won't mention his name. But that particular film didn't do big money at the box office, but actually it's a guilty pleasure of mine. And it takes the approach of – it has a cold opening, which is basically the one last heist, but they make it like the 10-minute opening scene. And then you sort of follow the characters as to where they go afterwards, which is retiring in the Caribbean with all the money in the world. But they're bored. Because if you got off on the thrill of the chase and trying to pull off heists for your entire criminal career, and then you stop doing that, it's like, I guess, dilemma that every single person faces in retirement. Like, when you have the money and can retire, and you do, do you find yourself now just bored, basically? And Ah, totally. In that film, he basically just can't resist one extra last heist, Pierce Brosnan's yeah, character. Yeah, because for him, it comes the to action backyard. is the juice. A- exactly. Speaking yeah. of the film Heat. Hoot. Exactly. Totally. So I think you do. I think that's one way to approach it. I mean, there's this great last shot I thought of in some sort of multiverse where you've got is it Enemy of the State? At the end of Enemy of the State, you see Will Smith turn on the television and there's like this kind of static. And then what appears is that Gene Hackman has hacked into his TV reception. Right. And shows his feet on holiday somewhere. We assume is like Mexico or somewhere like that. And I kind of think that reminds me of Heist, actually, like Gene Hackman's going south in a boat somewhere warm, somewhere tropical. I think the idea would be that he would miss the the action or something would happen where he'd lose Angela Bassett to a criminal or be blackmailed like in Sexy Beast out of retirement. Yeah, totally. Sexy Beast is another great example, right? The blackmail one where you happily, you don't want to go back, you don't need any more juice, but something that comes back into your world threatens your entire life and so you have to go back and do it reluctantly. I'd say that's the way you'd do it. One of those two ways- After the Sunset or Sexy Beast? Yeah, 100%. So, getting to our last award, the Memento Award, named it for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched the movie. Having now rewatched the score and heist, did any scenes jump out as a pleasant or unpleasant surprise? Unfortunately for this award, I guess I've seen both of the movies so many times, rewatching them is quite a pleasurable process, but not really now do I go, oh, I totally forgot about that scene, which I guess is the problem with having seen some of these movies that we'll do so many times. What about you? Was there stuff that you went, oh, I totally forgot that no, I, Sam I Rockwell was in this? I mean, I forgot that Patti LePune was in Heist. Yeah. She's a very yeah. famous Broadway actress. But, oh, yeah, she plays that alcoholic cop. Ah, oh, is that who she is? 
Okay. Yeah. Didn't know that. Okay. No, look, I've seen these films so many times, nothing jumps out new, except that scene I mentioned before about there being two pickups full of metal bars at the end. Yeah, and now I've got to go rewatch the movie again, <laughs> having just watched it like four hours ago. We're going back in. Then we'll call it a dead rubber then for the Memento Award. Okay. And the last thing is, ordinarily at the end of these podcasts, we say to ourselves, if we took the best elements of both movies, such as plot, cast, character, etc., could we pitch a dream third movie, which is an amalgamation of both? I can't, in this case, think of improving either movie, and I think you probably lean closer to Heist being a better film by itself anyway. Could Heist have taken any tips, scenes, character beats from score to improve it, do you think, besides Angela Bassett? I'm not sure because they're not so dissimilar in such a way that some other of these sort of twin movies, one is so much better than the other, so differently executed that, you know, you could be like, oh, this element or that element. But I guess with these two, they're quite similar. So, I mean, nothing springs to mind. Does anything for you? No, not really. I mean, it'd only be things taking certain actors. Like, I think Angela Bassett's better in her role and more interesting oh, sure. than Rebecca Pigeon. I don't think so. Maybe, I don't know. It'd be great seeing De Niro in a film like Heist, for example. And I wouldn't mind seeing De Niro try David Mamet's dialogue. That would be interesting. Yeah, I wonder if he's ever, even on Broadway, has he ever done Mamet? I don't know. He seems like a character who I think or an actor prefers delivering much more subtle performances and might not feel comfortable. I mean, he has done Mamet because David Mamet rewrote Ronan and then took his name off it. Ah, you're right. That's right. So, De Niro has done Mamet. But did he take his name? And he does it really well. You know, like, what colour is the roof of the boathouse at Harrisford? You know, I ambushed you with a fucking cup of coffee. That's true. Yeah. Okay. And Mamet wrote Untouchables. De Niro's done a shitload of Mamet. Yeah. Although, if he took his name off the first one, Ronan, may have taken his name off because they didn't like his dialogue. I think he took his name off because he felt like he'd actually rewritten so much of the movie he deserved credit. Like sole credit. Either Maybe. But either the WGA or, or whomever or the producers didn't want to give him that. So, he, I think he's credited as a pseudonym. That scene in Untouchables, the scene where Capone brains that guy with the baseball bat. I mean, that's some all-time Mamet and De Niro doing stuff together. Yeah, that's true. It'd be interesting, actually, even hearing, say, Ed Norton do Mamet dialogue as well, because Ed Norton strikes me as someone who feels comfortable with more naturalistic dialogue. Totally. You know who wouldn't work? Marlon Brando, yeah. directed by Dave Mamet. Yeah. Brando wants to just, you know, ad-lib, and Dave Mamet's saying, no, no, these lines are pure gold. Stick to it, buddy. But who knows, because one of the things I loved about High Stunt, I didn't get to mention earlier, is that- um, Danny DeVito plays the villain in it. And you don't often get to see Danny DeVito as a kind of tough or a heavy. And I'd say he does it. I mean, he doesn't have to, like, fight The Rock or something. But it's great seeing an actor you don't otherwise associate with this kind of film or a director, like in the case of Frank Oz with the score, doing it. Totally. I think you are leaving out the criminal masterminds that uh, Danny DeVito's played in both Batman as the Penguin and Batman Returns and also in Dumbo. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dumbo. It's classic. Yeah. Arch villain. <laughs> All right, I think it's time to put a fork in it, call it a night, my friend. That brings us into the show. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? I guess in the same places every week, the gutter of Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. Excellent. I'm Phelps on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies and What Happens Next, curated within one mega podcast called The Ben Phelps Show in the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. So, mate, Gay, this has been fun. Thank you for this. Uh, two of my favourite crime heist movies of all time. It's been awesome to talk to you about it. Yeah, it's great. Love it. Thanks for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin 
Action Movies Battle very soon. Night, mate. Bye.